Let's turn to Romans, please. Romans chapter 2. And Sundays, we've sort of been going through a verse-by-verse glance at the first few chapters of Romans where we have the battle of two Gospels and the contrast, really, of two Christian missionary endeavors. One, a Gospel of law. The other, a Gospel that glories only in the cross of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and nothing else. So once you get to Romans 2, I have a question that I'm going to pose today. It comes from, basically, if we get there, Romans chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. And the question is, when all turned away? When did all the human race, according to how God sees it, and it's extremely important that we understand through the scriptures, we have a view of things as God sees it, not as man sees it. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts, his ways than our ways, as the heaven is above the earth. As God sees it, when did all the human race turn away? Because as Paul quotes from Psalm 14, verses 1 to 3, repeated again in Psalm 53, 1 to 3, the Lord looked down from heaven and he saw the state of the human condition. One of the things that the Lord declared after surveying The human condition in all its generations, there is none that does good. There is none that seeks God. They have altogether and at the same time, we're going to look at this word, altogether and at the same time in the Septuagint translation we call the LXX. This word is used and it's a very revealing little adverb. They have all together and at the same time turned aside. How can all the human race at the same time, and all together, turn away from God who gave them existence, from the very God who called them into existence. Paul will say that to the Galatians, I marvel, I'm astonished at how quickly you are removed from him who called you. He's referring to the one who called them into existence as a new creation. God the Father, through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. This little adverb then, Hama, reveals so much. When did all the human race, and how could all the human race turn aside all at once and at the same time, especially since people don't live contemporaneously? They don't live at the same time. Could it be that there was a point in which mankind in general turned aside from God all at once and together? This is an arrow aimed at the heart of the unchained gospel which Paul unchains in Romans chapter 5 through 8. Chapters 5 through 8. After he demolishes a certain fortress, another gospel, a gospel by a Jewish Christian teacher, a person who believes that Jesus is the Messiah, but who has sidelined Jesus Christ and his saving work on the cross, He's basically presented a gospel of justification by works of the law. It's called a nomistic gospel, a gospel rooted in nomos or the law, a justification that you can never be sure of until the final day of judgment. And Jesus Christ died for sins, as they will acknowledge, but it does not have the fully orbed flavor of the gospel of God about his son. 
These gospel teachers, these other teachers in Galatia had maligned Paul. They had slandered him. They called him a renegade from the 12 apostles in Jerusalem. And Paul had to defend himself by saying, I did not receive my gospel from men, but by an apocalyptic revelation of Jesus Christ. If I still served men, if I was still accountable to some council, if I was still accountable to some magisterium of self-proclaimed scriptural experts, I would no longer be the slave of Christ. I received this gospel by an apocalyptic unveiling, a disclosure of Jesus Christ. The gospel, as Paul preached it then, is the narrative of a full divine invasion into the evil age, the present evil age, as Galatians 1.4 calls it. It's a full-scale divine invasion into the evil age by means of two divine missions. The first mission is that of the Son. The second mission is that of the Holy Spirit, Galatians 4, 4 through 6. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem us from the curse of the law. And then God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, producing a relational integrity with God by which we can call the father Abba, as Jesus did. The gospel of Paul then is the narrative of a full divine invasion into the evil age by means of two divine missions in order to liberate humanity. And I mean humanity who all turned aside at one point and require an unconditional deliverance. All mankind, all of humanity, and all of creation. Since this is going to be sort of an official definition in the series of Better Call Paul, I'll repeat it. The gospel as Paul proclaimed it is the narrative of a full divine invasion into this evil age by means of two divine missions, the Spirit and the Son, the Son and the Spirit, in order to liberate the whole of humanity and all of creation from suprahuman powers called sin, death, and the flesh, particularly related to humanity, or what we call the Adamic ontology, and also from evil principalities and powers. In other words, from a prison that humankind could by itself no means extract itself. The teacher's gospel that Paul is taking apart in Romans 1, 18 to 3.20, is a nomistic gospel. It's the presentation of salvation through the Torah, or the law, beginning with circumcision for males, rather than through the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so I want to continue in the text very briefly, and I'm going to have to return to this and deal with it more in detail in the future, but hopefully if you didn't bring your Bibles, listen carefully. This is my translation of Romans chapter 2. We're continuing in the text of Romans in which Paul is demolishing the fortress of this high thing that has elevated itself against the knowledge of God. It has presented God as a God of retributive justice and wrath rather than a God of unshakable, limitless benevolence who is love and who loved the world so much that he gave his son. First of all, Paul embarrasses two aspects of this false gospel. He brings up two embarrassing situations. One, what about the law-abiding or the Torah-obeying pagan? And there are some. 
And what about the law-breaking Jew? And there are some. It's demonstrable in history. What are, what are you going to do if it's a justification through obedience to the law and therefore only the circumcised are saved? What are you going to do about people that aren't circumcised or of the circumcision but who obey the law? And that group of people is called Christians, as we'll see. So Paul says in Romans 2.24, remember, he's going toe-to-toe with this other false teacher. For as it stands written, he says in verse 24, the name of God is blasphemed among the pagans because of you. That's a direct indictment of this teacher who's bringing another gospel. And then Paul quotes him in verse 25. This teacher teaches this, circumcision has value. Paul says circumcision indeed has value if you observe Torah, that is, if you fulfill the whole of the law. But if you're a transgressor of Torah, then your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So Paul goes on to reason, if the uncircumcision observes the regulation of Torah, then is not his uncircumcision considered as circumcision? Indeed, someone who is not physically circumcised, but who fulfills Torah, will, and that's in the future, judge, that's in the final judgment, you who are a lawbreaker, in spite of your having the letter of the law and circumcision. And then this sort of clinches this passage in verse 28. For a person is not a Jew, within quotes, who is one merely outwardly, that is by the ritual circumcision, or by men and women obeying ritually and ethically the law of Moses. A person is not a Jew, nor is true circumcision something merely external and physical. Instead, verse 29, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly and real circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not the letter whose praise comes not from men, but from God. So Paul is bringing up two embarrassing situations that you can view in this life. One is a law-abiding pagan. The other is a law-breaking Jew. And so Paul is demolishing the whole idea of a justification by the works of the law that begins with circumcision of the male. And this Jewish teacher agrees because of Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 6 because of Jeremiah. 9.26, he agrees that a true Jew is one both inwardly and outwardly, outwardly and inwardly, but he skips over the whole idea that this can only happen by the Spirit. The teacher's gospel, which is antagonistic to Paul's, sidelines Jesus Christ and the cross as the means of salvation, and he sidelines the Holy Spirit in terms of human ethics. And that's the important, the two important things we need to get from that. But I want to move quickly, and I wasn't going to move this quickly, but I am going to move quickly into Romans 3. Romans 3 begins with a question put to the teacher by Paul based on what has gone before. And this has to be seen as a dialogue. It's not punctuated in your Greek text because there are no quotations in the Greek. Therefore, we have to understand that this is a conversation going on between Paul and a person who he anticipates the arrival of in Rome who has this law gospel. And he calls it a gospel, but Paul says it's not really much good news attached to it. So he begins with a question. Paul says this, 
So what advantage does the Jew have? That is over the pagan or the Gentile. Or what is the value of circumcision? The teacher answers much in every way. The circumcised Jew has advantage and he says in the first place, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. Paul then says, but what if some were faithless? Will their faithlessness cancel the faithfulness of God? Good question. The teacher says, certainly not. God would be true. And then he cites a passage from Psalms 116.11. God would be true even if every human being were a liar. He quotes a passage in Psalm 51.4, incidentally in which the psalmist was having a panic attack. And in his panic, he said, every man is a liar, but God is true that you, God may be justified or proven right in your words. When you are judged, he quotes Psalm 51 4. Paul then says, if then our wickedness highlights God's righteousness or his justice in this case, what are we forced to conclude that God is unjust to afflict wrath. In other words, if the faithlessness of people highlights the faithfulness of God and glorifies God, then how can you still call faithless people sinners? And where's God justified in his wrath in delivering wrath to people? Paul asked this question. Then he puts in parentheses. I'm using a human argument. That is, he's citing a human objection. Paul does not believe that God is going to deliver wrath to people in the day of judgment. And I'll explain that as we go in this series. The teacher then says in verse six, absolutely not. God is not unjust. You can hear the hyper spirituality oozing from this guy. He's sort of like saying heaven forbid in that case, how will God judge the world? So Paul says, but if by my lie, the truthfulness of God is amplified to his glory, Why am I still judged as a sinner? And why not say, then he puts a little hyphen there, as some are slanderously saying that we are saying, let's do evil so that good may come. That was a charge against Paul's gospel because Paul teaches in Romans 5 that where sin abounds, grace all the more abounds. And so he was accused as saying, let's go out and do evil that good may come out of it. And that's a slanderous accusation of Paul's gospel, which he answers starting in Romans 6, verse 1, going all the way through Romans 8, 13, and even beyond that in a stunning ethical section. So as this teacher limits or sidelines Jesus Christ and his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and enthronement as the means of salvation, and puts forth the law as the means of salvation, Paul's gospel puts right at the heart and center Christ and him having been crucified. Having been crucified is the tense which emphasizes his resurrection, his ascension, and his enthronement. I determined to know nothing among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so Paul then asks, why not say, as some are slanderously saying, that we are saying, This has been an accusation against the gospel I've preached ever since 1978. It's a license to sin, is what people say. Because they don't see it as God sees it. They don't understand and comprehend the gospel. Teacher, the teacher says, their condemnation is deserved. And that means 
that on their side, they deserve it. Everything is about deserving with this other teacher. Everything is about deserving. Everything about, in Paul's gospel, is about grace, undeserved, unconditional, pure grace. Rescuing man who could not rescue himself. So then, whose condemnation is just? Who is this addressing? Is it the slanderers of Paul or the doers of evil that good may come? Probably the teacher is saying, because he's opposed to Paul, the teacher himself is accusing Paul of saying, let us go out and do evil that good may come. Misinterpreting grace, calling grace a license to sin, and all the rest of it. And I just wanted to kind of bypass this this passage and not treat it as much as I want to in the future, just to get to this. In Romans chapter 3, in verse 9, Paul then says, what then? Are we, speaking as a Jew to this Jewish teacher, are we Jews any better than the pagans? The teacher replies, well, no, not in every respect. He's backing down a little bit. Paul then replies, we. That means you and I both know. You and I both know the scriptures I'm about to quote, which universalizes the problem of human sin and enslavement. You and I both know this, and we have, he goes on to say, we have publicly charged everyone, both Jews and Greeks or pagans, to be under the power of sin. And this is where Paul shoots an arrow that's going to go deep into the heart of the unchained gospel. Notice what it says here. We have publicly charged everyone both Jews and Greeks or pagans, to be under the power of sin. The power of sin is Paul's understanding of what sin is. It is a suprahuman power that enslaves the human race. Only a divine invasion into that enslavement, only a divine invasion through the Son and the Spirit can extract and liberate manumet emancipate humankind from that enslavement. Nothing can do it. Not religion, not ritual. You can't ritually reconfigure the human condition so it looks better, smells sweeter, and all the rest of it. That doesn't mean a thing. So he says, this is how we do it. You and I both read these verses in our messages, Paul says. So you and I have both publicly charged the whole human race with being under the power of sin. In this way, he brings the teacher into a kind of a forced agreement with him, and he says, as the scripture puts it, as the scripture puts it, he's putting some lower blade data to this upper blade argument. As the scripture puts it, there is no one righteous, not even one. So your whole thing about people who seek after God and people who are selflessly seeking for God will receive eternal life is a false idea. It's an absurdity, Paul is saying. And he's quoting from, and you can look this up on your own, Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. There is not one who understands. So your whole idea that the pagan is supposed to contemplate the universe and come to the knowledge of God through a natural theology, if there's none that understands... How can there be such a person to come to the right conclusions about God and about what ethics he requires? 
When did all human beings turn aside? When pagans looked into the air and became unthankful? Or was there another time in which all of humanity at the same time, all together, turned away from the God who gave them existence? That's the question. And it goes somewhere to the heart of the gospel. This is quoting from Psalm 14, 1, in which the, it's a, in the context of a divine survey. There's not one who does good, not a single one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks for God. All of them have turned aside at the same time. There's our little preposition, our little adverb, hama. All of them have turned aside at the same time. This must be understood in context. This is a picture of Yahweh, the God of creation, looking down and seeing by his omnipotent vision an omnipresent vision, an omniscient vision, the whole of the human race taken all together. And he sees the whole of the human race having all together and at the same time turned away from God. Now watch how this fits in with the gospel that I just defined for you. He goes on in verse 11 to say, there is not one who understands, no one seeks for God. All of them had turned aside at the same time. They have become depraved there is no one who acts kindly, not a single one. Now, the first quote is the context of a divine survey to, of the children of men. That's a name for humanity in general. Psalm 14.1 starts off by saying, the fool says in his heart, God won't do anything. It doesn't say so much, God, there is no God. It simply says, God won't do anything. They are corrupt. They are abominable in their pursuits. The fool, as the net translation says, he doesn't deny God per se, but any meaningful action on the part of God. And so does this teacher's gospel. This teacher's gospel does not see that the whole matter of salvation is a divine action from its initiation to its completion. I'm convinced, says Paul, that God who began this good work in you will fulfill it on the day of Christ Jesus. And even when it comes to an ethical life, a spiritual life afterwards, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling because it is God in you both willing and doing of his own good pleasure. In Philippians 2, 12 to 13. So as the net note says, and I think helpfully, the fool, it's not a, it's not a philosophical assertion that God does not exist by the fool, but rather it is a confident affirmation that God is unconcerned about how men live morally and ethically. God does not act in history. It's kind of like what some of our early Americans believed in deism. God winds up the clock and leaves it. So Psalm 14, 2 goes on to say, and this is extremely important because this is what Paul is quoting. The Lord looks down on the sons of men. This is God, the creator, the redeemer, the covenant God, doing an assessment of the whole human race all at once. He looks down on the sons of men to see if there is one, just one, who understands or who searches for God. And so verse 3 of Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 becomes God's assessment, the appraisal of Yahweh on the whole of humankind. This is not how we see humankind because we see among humankind nice people. We see among humankind very bad people. But we fail to recognize that whether people are naughty or nice, they're still in the same bag. They are under sin. 
and they can act up to a certain point in some moral type of way, or they can ritually reconfigure their state so they smell sweeter, but the whole human race, in God's view, is incapable of extracting itself from suprahuman powers called sin, death, and principalities and powers. So, here's God's view. This is his assessment. All of them together have turned away at the same time. There's the adverb that hit me right in the forehead when I was reading this. All together and at the same time. And they have become depraved. And he emphasizes it again. There is not one among them who does good. Not even a single one. That's emphatic. So here we get the first hints that the gospel of God, which Paul preaches as a man sent not from men, but from God. Paul is as a messenger sent not from men, not from a committee, not from an affiliation, not from a denomination, but from God through Jesus Christ. Paul, a man sent from God, preaches a gospel, an announcement of good news, not from men, but from God. And first, this gospel is rooted in divine action toward mankind. Divine action toward mankind. God loved the world so much, he gave his eternally begotten son. While we were yet dead in sins, he made us alive in Christ Jesus. While we were still hostile to God and enemies, Christ died for the ungodly, Romans 5, 6, 5, 8, Ephesians 2, 1, Ephesians 2, 5. For by God's sheer grace, you have been saved through faithfulness. And that faithfulness is Messiah's faithfulness, as we've learned twice again this week. Not of yourselves, and it's not of works in accordance with the law, so that no one can boast. So it's rooted in divine action toward mankind. Secondly, Paul's gospel, or the gospel of God about his son, is an action that God takes on behalf of the totality of humanity. That's extremely important. The gospel is the announcement of the divine action taken by God on behalf of the whole of humanity. All of humanity at a certain time and all together turned away. How could that be if we all live in different generations? We'll see. And so the first thing is it's rooted in divine action toward all of humankind and all of creation for that matter. Because all of creation, according to Paul in Romans eight nineteen, is waiting for a liberation. Emancipation from what? Enslavement. To what? Corruption. And when will that come? At the manifestation of the sons of God, at the glorification of you. In Romans 8.23, in Romans 8.30, when we see him and become like him, when we see him as he is, in 1 John 3.2, that's when. The third thing about Paul's gospel is it must be an act of unconditional grace on God's part. Because human beings have become altogether, and at the same time, worthless is the word. Depraved is the word. Furthermore, human beings in this state 
are radically incapacitated and thus in that state totally unable to assess their own desperate situation. Meaning in that situation, they can't recognize how sinful they are and therefore admit their sin and believe in Jesus. They can't. They have no understanding. The only way that we can know how sinful we were is by being in Christ and looking back. Because then we have the mind of Christ to see where our situation was. It's a retrospective view that can make us see how sinful we were. God invaded our space in this evil age to rescue us from this present evil age, says Galatians 1.4. This present evil age means a, an age of history characterized by enslavement of humanity and creation. And the beginning of this liberation comes when the Holy Spirit invades your life. And you realize that you have been incorporated into Christ and that you died when he died and arose when he arose and were lifted up and seated together with him in heavenly places. And so in you begins a very small but real, and don't despise the beginning, small beginnings, the day of small beginnings, the small beginnings of a liberation that will only be complete in your bodily resurrection. It's begun. So it has to be an act of unconditional grace on the part of God because human beings have become what? All together and at the same time. Hama. All together and at the same time they became worthless. When? I thought this was supposed to happen to each individual as they contemplated the cosmos and they came to the wrong conclusion, weren't thankful, didn't see God. So God handed them over to depraved passions and cravings and desires. That's what the teacher teaches because that's what books that he reads teach, which are non-canonical books like the wisdom of Solomon and Sirach and other books. That's what that teaches. But listen carefully and follow this thread of thought. And I deliberately went to the heart of this and skipped over a lot today to get to this. Let's just further assess the human state outside of grace. Human beings in this state are radically incapacitated and unable to assess their own desperate situation. Which Paul describes in Ephesians 2 as dead in trespasses. And sins. What can a dead man do to make himself alive? What can a depraved person do to make himself saved? Well, let's look. Dead in trespasses and sins, continually conducting themselves in the ways of the Olam Hazad. That's the Hebrew for the present evil age. Continually obeying the ruler of the atmospheric domain. Another supra-human power. Pastor Brown prayed that we would be delivered from the power of this supra-human agent, the evil one. And we are in some substantial way and will be in a glorious way, as will all of creation and all of humankind, according to Paul's gospel. Now, if you want to go by the other guy's gospel, go ahead. I mean, the majority of Christendom today is not going totally with this other guy's gospel, but they're going by a kind of a hodgepodge of a mixture between his and Paul's. So we're not justified by works, but we're justified by our own personal faith that we make it a certain situation, a certain time in life when we recognize our sinfulness, et cetera, et cetera. La, la, blah, blah, blah. Now, the old Romans road. 
It's full of potholes. I've chosen the road less traveled as the poet Robert Frost, who lived for a stretch of time in Vermont. That's where he got his wisdom when he was in Vermont. Came to a fork in the road in the wood. I took the path less traveled by. But as the rapper Everlast said, and I agree with his assessment, the road less traveled sure got a lot of stones. And they're stones that people throw at you. And if you preach this gospel and you develop in this gospel, you'll have a segment of your congregation that every year or so will undergo a knee-jerk reaction and think you're saying something that you're not. But that's on purpose. I always like to shake you up because you know why? The worst enemy of your spiritual life is complacency. So watch this as it unfolds. What else about the human condition? It's the, we are obedient continually to the ruler of the atmospheric domain, the spirit being who is now at work in the sons of disobedience, conducting themselves in the desires and disposition of the flesh, which is the Adamic ontology, our existence in Adam, who were by nature children of wrath. That means people characterized by wrath. You can see it on TV every day. People characterized by anger, wrath, rage, Fury, resantima, both sides of the political spectrum. It's what's killing the country. What's killing the country now is a stasis, a polarity that is being created by partially by outside agents, but it's working. So children of wrath here doesn't mean children that are susceptible to the wrath of God. It means the children of the human race are characterized by wrath. My father used to say, he listened to some of the modern music of, of what he would say, the kids today, you know that whole thing, how that thing goes. And he says he'd rather listen to the big band era. And I remember my sisters and I saying to him, well, why is that, Dad? And he said, because everybody sounds so angry today. And it's true, if you listen to some, it's anger, it's wrath. We were all children of wrath by nature, according to Ephesians 2.3, characterized by it. Press us hard enough and our sweet smile will dissolve into hatred. I saw this happen at the University of Vermont. There were two popular girls on our, that we had the dorms where everybody, both sexes lived in them. And there were two girls that were very, they were kind of cute and they were popular. And they had this, to me it was sort of an obnoxious way of always being cheerful and pert and all the rest of it. And they were always this way until one day in my room, someone asked me, well, what happened to you recently, Nap? We heard you became a Jesus freak. And I told them I had become a Christian. Their cutesy, pertsy little ways turned into vicious anger and accusation. I can't say I lost friends because they weren't friends of mine when they were in the cutesy stage either. I liked them better in the angry stage because it really revealed where their hearts were. That was an example. The road less traveled sure got a lot of stones. You see, people can reconfigure this depraved state by ritual, by sacrament, by sweet singing, by human acts of morality and ethics. They can reconfigure it, just like sugar is reconfigured in a lot of different ways in the aisles of the stores today. Why do I love that food so much? Because it's... Sugar reconfigured, and your favorite thing is sugar. The Adamic ontology can be reconfigured, put it through ritual, 
Circumcise it. Baptize it. That's a good one. Make it march down an altar. Have it throw its cigarettes and Jack Daniels on the altar in front of everybody. It's still a damnic ontology. Only now it's dressed up with what Isaiah called filthy rags, and I won't get into the exegesis of that. It's too early in the day. It's also a state in which Paul says, we, just like the rest, he says, we, speaking retrospectively, he's in Christ now, but he said, we were just like the rest. The rest of who? The rest of all humankind. In Ephesians 2.12, in this world, as it is, this cosmos, this evil age, and existing with no hope and without God in the world. That's the state. It should be noted that mankind went away together and at the same time, listen carefully, when Adam sinned and committed an act of disobedience, when Adam sinned and turned away from the God who gave him existence, so did you and so did I. We all turned away, the whole human race, as in Adam all die. Why? Because in Adam, the whole human race at the same time, turned away from God. And because the state of man on earth was so bad, God had to send a divine man from heaven to save mankind. Someone from the outside. This gospel's from the outside. It's from an entity outside of this world that you and I know nothing about in that depraved state. There's none that knows God. Nobody seeks after him. Nobody understands I can tell by looking at the stars that there's a God. He's not only all-powerful and eternal, which you might, you may or may not assess that from a view of the stars as a pagan. But the, this guy says, but you're also supposed to get from that that God is moral and ethical and expects ethics and morality from you. How do I get that from the stars? They look pretty confused to me until I see them formed in their constellations. Again, it should be noted that mankind went away together, and at the same time, when Adam sinned, and not each one individually, after contemplating the universe, and then acknowledging God, or becoming thankful. That is, the preacher says, each individual rejects God and turns away. When he contemplates the creation, and doesn't come to the conclusion that God is God. And doesn't become thankful. That's when people turn away. It's an individual thing. They turn away individually. And so they individually have to be evangelized. And told that by obeying the law. They can be justified in the last day. But they can't really know they'll be justified. Until the last day. And that's when you stack up all your works. And hopefully they weigh more than your bad works. Etc. It is not. When mankind. Individually contemplated the universe. And then did not acknowledge God when mankind turned away. Uh, Hamas says they turned away altogether and at the same moment. In other words, God views the entirety of the human race in Adam and shows that the only solution is to have the human race be shifted into the second Adam, Christ, the divine man from heaven, who became flesh for a reason. He didn't just become a human. He became flesh because he became flesh and by his incarnation was announcing that his intention was to redeem all of creation, mankind, in their desperate condition included. 
I'm going to say it one more time. It should be noted that mankind went away together, according to Romans 3.12, back to Psalm 14, 1 to 3, Psalm 53, 1 to 3. They went together. They went away together from God. And at the same time, when Adam sinned, and not each one individually, that's why Paul was so shocked in Galatians. He said, I'm amazed that you have soon, so soon gone away and turned aside, you churches in northern Turkey, you turkeys, you, you Celtic peoples, you, they were Celtic. He said, you foolish Galatians, I'm amazed, I'm astonished that you have so soon turned away, he's referring to the same concept, from him who called you into existence as a new creation. God called mankind into existence as the old creation. It's a creation we'll never go back to. And all mankind turned away from him. So imagine how Paul was appalled when these teachers came in and kicked out Paul's teachers and bullied their way in and got the Galatians to think that now they had to be saved by circumcision and works of the Torah. Paul's saying, you guys are turning away altogether and at the same time from him who called you into existence as a new creation. You're going back, but you see, it's impossible for you now to be male and female and slave and free. He goes back to Genesis 1.27, male and female. God created the first creation, male and female. We can never go back to the first creation. God has made us a new creation in Christ Jesus. He's done it. It's finished. It's finished. It's done. So why go back is what Paul's saying in Galatians. He's shocked. He's horrified. And man, does he lay down the gauntlet in that epistle. We'll be getting there too. I can't wait to teach Galatians with some good old godly rage. So it's true that mankind in general has become depraved, but the roots of depravity are from their inclusion in Adam. Why? Because, again, the arrow is going further ahead. By one man, sin passed into the human race. Romans 5, 12. By one man, sin passed into the whole human race, and with it, death. The whole human race became enslaved to sin and death as suprahuman powers from which mankind cannot extract himself by the one man's sin. He goes on later to say in Romans 5, through one man's disobedience, all men, all humankind are considered to be condemned or under sin. But through one man's obedience, the man from heaven, the man Christ Jesus, the divine man, his obedience to the extent of death by crucifixion, all humankind might receive a justification which is really life, says Romans 5.18. That to me is where the heart of the gospel is. That's why I say this declaration of all humankind turning aside all at once and together in Romans 3.12 is an arrow aimed at Romans 5.12. The whole of the human race. God acted to save the whole of humanity, not one individual at a time when they recognize their sinful state, confess their sin or admit their guilt or whatever, all the rest of that stuff, or say a sinner's prayer or get so desperate and fall apart that they have to have a, a crisis conversion like Luther did. It's not that way at all, folks. 
It's true that mankind in general has become depraved, but the roots of that depravity are not from their individual choice to reject God after contemplating the cosmos in Romans 1, 18 to 20. It's because they were already turned aside in Adam. And of course they do become unthankful. They do become ungrateful. We are an ungrateful people because we do the things that this teacher says, but we don't do the things that this teacher says because we're accountable to pass the test of getting God all squared away through natural theology. We're that way because we're that way in Adam from birth on. So you must be born again, Jesus said. No other thing will cure it. You got to be born again. You mean, says the master teacher of Israel named Nicodemus, I got to go back into my mother's womb? Whoa. I taught at a church once. Again, it was long enough ago so that I'm not indicting anybody. I taught on the heart, the human heart, and taught about things like I'm talking about today with the heart man believes and with the heart. And at the end of this, one of the church leaders that I was visiting the church said, now by heart, this is his question afterwards, you don't mean this pump in the middle of our chest. And I was thinking, now I know how Jesus felt when Nicodemus said, you mean I got to go back into my mother's womb and be born again? Now, that's, I'm not blaming that person. They simply needed to be born again to see the kingdom of God. And it's coming. It's probably come since then. So it's not, it is true that mankind in general has become depraved. That doesn't mean that man is always as bad as he can be. That doesn't, that's not what depravity means. There's obviously gradations in human beings among those that are sowing and reaping and reaping bad things and doing bad things. And there's other people doing good things, but God sees the whole mass of humanity as in Adam and incapacitated as far as seeking God, finding God or becoming justified. Depravity doesn't mean we're as bad as we can be. Some people study to be as bad as they can be. But it means that we can reconfigure this depravity in all kinds of ways and be relatively morally righteous or relatively ethically righteous next to somebody else. And then we compare each other with each other. We judge each other with each other. We become self-righteous, which is a worse evil. In other words, the whole human race is that way because we are in Adam. And when Adam sinned, we all turned aside. So when Christ obeyed and went to the cross and died for us, he died to rescue all the human race from its state of enslavement brought to them courtesy of Adam. That's the gospel. So then God acted in a way that invaded the condition of mankind with the intention of liberating humankind and all of creation for that matter. Is he successful? I asked that in gospel of John and in revelation. Was he successful walking by faith? I say he was walking by sight. I can't tell, but we don't walk by sight, but by faith. It's important that we consider what Psalm 14 and 53 are saying here. Both are saying, both of them, that all together and at the same time, the human race, the sons of men, the children of human beings, all human beings have turned away from God. That's as God sees it. The little Greek adverb hama means at the same time and together. I want to hammer that home because it's a, 
an arrow that shoots into the heart of the unchained gospel. The word all is pantes. It employs all without exception, all human beings without exception. All the sons of men, all of humanity has all together and at the same time turned away. Again, please note, this is as God sees it. When Yahweh looked down upon the sons of men, he contemplated the whole mass of humanity. And so did he when he sent Christ to die. While we, the whole mass of humanity, were still hostile to God, Christ died right then. So when do I... Get the knowledge of Christ then. When God is pleased to reveal it to you, that's why. That's when. Paul, the preacher of this gospel, had God reveal his son to him when he was in the midst of considering how he could kill them all. And by kill them all, I mean Christians. For when Jesus appeared to him, as Dave said, Dave Bradshaw said to me earlier, Paul said, who are you, sir? He wasn't calling him Lord of the universe. He was calling him, sir, who are you? And I said, this week I answered, Jesus said, I'm Jesus. You know, the one you're persecuting. That's when God chose to reveal his son to Paul. It wasn't after Paul went through all of the critical things that Luther went to and then came to a conclusion how desperately sinful he was. And so he then believed in Jesus. No, God was pleased to reveal his son to Saul of Tarsus when Saul of Tarsus, whole nephesh, his whole breath of life was aimed toward murder. He doesn't fit the pattern that we're supposed to see in people getting saved. He didn't recognize his sinful condition. He said, I thought I was in the law blameless. I was blameless. That's the human condition is so bad that it doesn't recognize what condition it's in. So it has to go back to Kenny Rogers's first song in the first edition. I just dropped in to see what condition my condition was in. That's exactly what we ought to do. Drop in and see what condition your condition is in outside of redemption, outside of Christ. And the condition of the whole human race is found right there in Romans. So as I wind down to a close, how can this be? It can be if we understand this to be what occurred when Adam turned away from God in his one act of disobedience. One man, one act. Second act of this two-act play, one man, Christ Jesus. Not among the men, not among the children of men whom God surveyed and gave up on, as it were. They be, you know what they were? God would have said, what a basket of deplorables. They're irredeemable. And in that state, they are. And so God sends someone outside of this world into this world. No man has ever ascended into heaven, Jesus said, but the Son of Man who first descended he came into this world born into the human condition born under the law and he became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of god who's we well let me think let me go back a verse or two from second corinthians five twenty-one. god was in christ reconciling the world to himself not imputing their trespasses to them. Well, this teacher said he's imputing the trespasses. We looked up into the sky as pagans and we didn't recognize God. We didn't become thankful. We turned to idolatry and therefore God imputed that sin to us and sent us away into doing all these cravings and self-destructive lust patterns. And Paul says the, the word of God doesn't say that. It says God was in Christ 
reconciling the world to himself, not imputing the world's trespasses to them. And he's applied to us, he's given to us, he's entrusted to us this word of reconciliation. For he who knew no sin became sin, that we, the world, might become the righteousness of God in him, or the expression of God's saving act in Christ. That's what we are. When Adam turned away, all of humanity turned away in him. So when the scripture says all sinned in Romans 3.23, all sinned, not all have sinned, all sinned. That's an act. We all sinned in the act of Adam's sin. We all sin. We all keep coming short of the glory of God, which means the whole human race is falling short of what it means to be truly, fully human. And there's only one truly, fully human. It's the Son of Man. It's Jesus Christ who will conform us into his image and is on the way of do- to doing it now unto a two, true, total humanity. We keep falling short of the glory of God. And then in Romans 3.24, being justified or rescued unconditionally by God's grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Man, how did we, how do we miss it? This strand of thought carries over to Romans 5 where the unchained gospel declares that just as the whole of humanity was included in Adam when he turned away from the God who gave him his existence, so the whole of humanity was inclined or included in Christ, so that as 1 Corinthians 15.22 says, in Adam all die. Why in Adam all die? Because in Adam all the human race turned aside all at once from God. But so in Christ, all will be made alive. Why? Because all of humanity was included in Christ when he died. I was crucified with Christ, Paul said. When he died, you died with him. And your life is hid with Christ in God. When he was buried, you were buried with him. By baptism, that means by incorporation into him by the Holy Spirit, you were included in that downward trajectory of death and burial. But you were raised together with him, says Colossians 3.1. His history became your history. His story is your story. And you were lifted up with him in Ephesians 2.6 and made to sit with him in heavenly places. You were in Christ. And the whole human race was in Christ when he died, when he was buried, and when he rose. In fact, all of creation was in him because of God's intention. God's intention is to summarize everything in Christ. And Jesus was obedient to that intention of God by going to the cross. He was obeying the intention of God to save all of humanity and all of creation. The question I asked at the beginning of the series, are Paul's epistles all taken together? A presentation of Jesus Christ and his universal saving significance is coming into a clear answer and a coherent one, I think. But I'm not anywhere near done. I'm not a tenth done yet with this series. In earnest, in closing, the gospel of God about God's son is not individualistic. It is not announcing a salvation through each individual's personal faith in Jesus when they finally have assessed their condition in depravity and sin. They can't. It's rather announcing a communal salvation. And by communal, I'd almost have to say universal. A salvation of the whole community of mankind. This salvation is not anthropocentric, meaning 
It's not based on each individual's choice to believe in Jesus. It is Christocentric. And there's the offense. There's the offense. There's the offense of the cross. It is cruciocentric. Christ and him crucified. It's rooted in the intention of God to sum up all of humanity and all creation in his Messiah in Ephesians 1, 9 to 11. This is what lies ahead in Romans. This is what we have to look forward to in Romans in this year of the gospel unchained, in this year of the breakout of the gospel from its contractual and traditional Christian restraints. There's two gospel missions going on today, just like in Paul's day. One is a mixed bag of anthropocentric and Christocentric. One is totally and completely Christocentric. And it shocks and amazes and puts off people who say they're Christocentric. And they may even have conferences around that word in which teachers are required to teach anthropocentric doctrines. And if you come in with a totally Christocentric one, you're not allowed. You haven't, you, you've been extremely vetted, and you're not allowed. Obviously, you're going to go to a church to terrorize them. The salvation is Christocentric. It's rooted in the intention of God to sum up all of humanity. Jesus says, so, Father, you want to sum up all humanity in me, and it has to come through my death, burial, and resurrection? Okay, then I'll do it. I'll be obedient to your intention of love to sum up all of creation in me, and I'll do it. A body you've prepared for me that I might do your will, he says in Hebrews. So, I know this is ahead. You know why? I'm your scout. I went ahead. I scouted out the land. It's good. There's giants there, but we can take them. And Ecclesiastes 7.20 also comes ramming in at the end and says, Indeed, there isn't a righteous person. Sadiq is the word used for the righteous one, Jesus Christ. The righteous one has to come out from outside of that assessment of humanity. There isn't a righteous one. And the word man there is Adam. There is not a righteous person in Adam, says Ecclesiastes 7.20 in the Hebrew. On earth, who does good and never sins. So what did Jesus Christ do when he came into this world? He went about doing good and healing and curing people from the power of Satan in Hebrew in Acts 10.38. And he did not sin. He did no sin. And he who knew no sin became sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. This is precisely why Paul calls him the man from heaven, not the earthly Adam. He enters the present evil age. He alone is the righteous one. It's his fidelity alone made effective by love. I refer you to Wednesday and Thursday's messages. And it's the means of our salvation. And by our salvation, I mean the salvation of all the unrighteous ones for whom the only righteous one died in first Peter three eighteen, And that righteous one is the propitiation for sins, not ours only, but the sins of the whole world. Thank you, father, for this opportunity. The gospel is so glorious because it's about the glory of your son. It's centered radically in the person of your son. It's a rescue mission by a divine 
triune God by the father who sent his son, but didn't send his son away was in his son as his son completed his mission. And by the father and the son who sent the spirit and are not leaving the spirit alone, but are in the spirit producing in us a relationship, which is conformity into the image of Jesus Christ. Father, I for one, thank you that your missions, these two divine missions by which you have invaded this present evil age on a rescue mission, that both these missions and both together as one divine action are successful. We look forward to seeing that success when all things are in you and you are in all things. 